Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. It seems like the world is spinning out of control, doesn't it? Every day we're bombarded with disturbing headlines about the rising crime rate in our own country, about geopolitical tensions around the world that are increasing, it seems like, every day. And you add to that the growing instability in our own country as fewer and fewer Americans trust in a broken government and a biased media. It just feels like something is different this time. If you have that feeling, you're not alone. This week, one respected news source reported that U.S. officials say this confluence of crises poses epic concern and historic danger. Even seasoned former Defense Secretary Bob Gates recently admitted America is facing the most crises it has ever faced since World War II. And one respected military official said, we are just six steps away from World War III. No wonder a recent Newsweek poll indicated that nearly 40% of Americans, this is Christians and non-Christians alike, 40% of Americans believe we are living in the end times. In Luke chapter 21, the passage which the choir just sang, Jesus gave his disciples a sneak preview of what is going to happen in the end times. In verses 10 and 11, he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. As we read these words and read the headlines, we can't help but wonder, are we actually living in what the Bible calls the end times? That's the question we're going to answer over the next six weeks. Are we living in the end times? In the weeks ahead, we're going to look at what is Israel's role in the end times. We'll look at what the headlines will be that signal we are truly in the end times. And most importantly, we'll discover how we should prepare for the end times. But today, as we introduce this series, we're going to answer a basic question, and that is, what does the Bible mean by the end times? Now, before we begin looking at the what of the end times, we ought to answer the question, why? Why should we even care about the end times? Let's face it. Not that many churches address the subject of the end times anymore. Some of you are watching right now. You're in a church that rarely, if ever, talks about the end of the world and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Look at our own Metroplex, how few churches are talking about the end times even right now. Many Christians erroneously believe that, well, in church, we ought to be talking about more spiritual things, like how to improve your prayer life or how to improve your marriage. We ought to talk about relevant topics. 
But I want to submit to you that the end times ought to always be a focus of our study. There are three reasons for studying the end times. Number one, the end times is a major theme in the Bible. You can always tell how important a subject is by how much ink it gets in the Bible. How much space did God devote to this subject? And you'll find there's a lot of space devoted to the end times. For example, did you know that for every one prophecy in the Old Testament, about Christ's first coming to Bethlehem. For every one prophecy about his first coming, there are eight about his second coming. There are 1,800 references in the Old Testament alone to the second coming of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, one out of every 30 verses deals with the second coming of Christ. 23 out of 27 books of the New Testament deal with the end times. And the last book of the Bible, the most detailed uh, document about the end times, the book of Revelation, is the only book in the Bible that has a special blessing attached to those who read, understand, and obey its teachings. Now, why is that? If the end times are supposed to be a mystery that nobody can understand and have no relevance to daily life, why does God talk about it so frequently? It is a major theme of the Bible. Secondly, understanding the end times helps us interpret and apply the Bible. I want to be real blunt about this. It is impossible to understand the Bible, much less apply the Bible, unless you understand the end times. You can't understand the Old Testament, especially the prophets, without an understanding of the end times. You can't understand Jesus' teachings, especially the parables, without understanding the end times. And you certainly can't understand the epistles, the letters written by Paul and Peter and others, without having a firm understanding of the end times. Let me just give you one example of that, can I? Matthew 25, verses 35 through 40 are some of Jesus' most quoted and yet misunderstood and misapplied words in the entire Bible. Remember Matthew 25, beginning with verse 35? Jesus said, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or in jail, or naked? And the king will answer and say to them, verse 40, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these my brothers, even the least of them, you did it to me. I heard a Christian say one time, I'm a Matthew 25 Christian. He went on to explain, he said, his whole life is centered around feeding the hungry, taking care of those without clothes, visiting those who are in prisons. That's the essence of the gospel, he said. Well, that guy would have been better off being a Matthew 24 and 25 Christian, because if you don't understand Matthew 24, you don't understand Matthew 25. Look, the calling of the church is not to take care of people's physical needs. Never has been, never will be. It's not to pass out water and food and clothes to those who are doing without. That's not what we're called to do. Yeah, yes, if we see a Christian brother or sister in need and we can help them, we ought to, James said. There are organizations 
people like Susie Jennings in our church that do a great job the Saturday before Christmas of having a big event at the convention center and taking care of the physical needs of the homeless. But they do that for a reason, so that they have a chance and a privilege of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look, the mission of the church is not to be a sanctified social agency. We're not called to do what the government or any other church organization is doing. Every other organization, every charitable organization in the world takes care of people's needs on this side of the grave. Only the church of Jesus Christ takes care of people's needs after they die, and that is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But reading Matthew 25, you'll misapply that if you don't understand the context. This starts in Matthew 24. The Lord said to the disciples, you want to know about the end of times? They want to know, Lord, what shall be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus said, here's what's going to happen. He gives them a detailed explanation. And when he gets to chapter 25, he's gone through explaining about the tribulation, and he's talking about the judgments at the end of the tribulation that will occur before the millennium. People, both Christians and non-Christians, will be judged by how they treated a group of special witnesses, the 144,000 Jews who were saved and sealed to preach the gospel. And Jesus is saying, whether you're one of mine or not depends on how you treat these brothers, these Jewish witnesses. To the extent you're hospitable to them and care for them, it is as if you're doing it to me. That's what he's talking about, not giving the worldwide mandate for the church of Jesus Christ. My point is, you can't understand that if you don't understand end times. And number three, why understand the end times? The end times motivate us to godly living. Peter illustrates this perfectly in 2 Peter 3, beginning with verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God? You hear what Peter is saying? If all of this world is going to be burned up and everything in it, that ought to impact the way you live every day. Knowing that the end is coming, that the world is going to be burned up, and only that which we've done for Christ is going to last. The Bible never divorces the end times about the future with our life today. It ought to motivate us to godly living. Now, before we get into our study of the end times, we need to make sure that we avoid the one major mistake people make when they study and talk about the end times, and that is trying to say, set a date for Christ's return. In Matthew 24, verse 36, in this Olivet Discourse, listen to what Jesus said, talking about his second coming. Of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Jesus said there's no one except God the Father who knows when the Son is coming back again. No teacher knows, no angel knows. Even the Son of God himself doesn't know when he's returning, only God the Father. Now, don't get hung up on that last part. You know, Jesus was God. He had all the attributes of God. He was omniscient, 
all-knowing. When he came to earth, he didn't give up his attributes, but some of those attributes were veiled by human flesh. He voluntarily surrendered some of the, the exercise of some of those attributes while he was on earth. That's what it's talking about. During the time he walked on earth, he temporarily veiled that knowledge, but it's only temporary. He knows when he's coming back right now. He's in heaven right now. What Jesus is saying, if the angels don't know, if the Son of God himself does not know the date he's coming back, I'll guarantee you, you don't know. And I don't know. And yet we hear these teachers all the time. They disgrace themselves in Christianity when they say things like, now I know the Bible says we're not supposed to try to guess the time that Christ is coming back, but, and it's this but that always gets them in trouble. Anytime somebody gives you a date that they think the Lord is coming, know for sure it's not gonna be that date because no man knows the hour or the day. Throughout history, there have been people who have been disgraced in their prediction that the end of the world and Christ's return was certain, and they had a certain date for it. For example, I jotted down some of these. I thought you'd be interested in them. In AD 160, a Christian teacher, Montanus, said that the new Jerusalem was about to descend from heaven to a field in present-day Turkey. Claimed it was just right around the corner. Many Christians stood and waited and waited and waited to their disappointment. A few hundred years later, Pope Innocent III came up with the date for the end of the world. He said, if you take the number 666, the number of the Antichrist, and add it to the year that Islam was founded by that charlatan, Muhammad, if you put those two things together, you come up with the date of the end of the world. And he said it's 1656 or 1658. Clearly, he missed it. Um, he, he actually said 1284. It was Christopher Columbus, Christopher Columbus, who predicted when the end of the world would occur. He said it was going to be in 1656 or 1658. Clearly, Columbus should have stuck with his day job of being an explorer. He missed it. In 1831, William Miller, the founder of the Adventist movement, predicted that Jesus would return on March 21st, 1844. When he missed that, he changed the date, recalculated to October 22nd, 1844. When that date did not yield the return of Christ, the media called his prediction, quote, the great disappointment. Charles Taze Russell, uh, Russell, the founder of Jehovah's Witness, predicted that Christ would return on, in 1914. He made seven more failed predictions about the return of Christ. In our own lifetime, just recently, the late Christian radio broadcaster, Harold Camping made as many as 13 failed predictions about the date for the rapture of the church. The last one was October 21st, 2011. People drained their life savings to give to Harold Camping so that he could put billboards up around the country saying when Christ was coming back again. Now, some people are saying, well, that's just like those crazy Christians. That's why you ought to stay away from Christians. They're all nuts. It's not just Christians making failed predictions about the end of the world. Secularists have done it as well. I'm old enough to remember in 1967, there was a best-selling book that said the world would end because of mass starvation by 1975. When that didn't happen, 
the environmentalists turned to a different concern. Global? No. Not global warming, global cooling. Some of you forgot that. Before global warming, there was global cooling. There was the prediction that we were about to enter into a new ice age that would completely destroy the world by the year 2000. And when that didn't happen, then the environmentalists turned to a concern about global warming, that it was going to get so hot that the polar ice caps are going to unfreeze, they're going to thaw, and there's going to be a resulting torrent of water that floods and destroys the entire world. Now, I can tell you with absolute certain, in fact, if this happens, that happens, you can strike me dead. I can guarantee you the world is not going to flood because of the polar ice caps. You know how I know that? and can say that with such certainty because God has already said it. He said, I've already destroyed the world once by a flood. I'm not going to repeat myself. I'm going to destroy the world again, not with a flood, but with fire. And to give you that sign and that promise, I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky to remind you of my faithfulness. Every environmentalist needs to look at a rainbow to see what God's promise is about that. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't take care of the environment. Of course we should. We should be good stewards. But what I'm saying is this, man is not going to destroy this world, but God is going to destroy it one day. I heard one preacher say, if you're, if you're upset about what human beings have done to the environment, just wait till Jesus gets through with it. <laughs> I mean, read the book of Revelation, Revelation 6 through 19. It is going to end, not by man, but by God himself. No man knows the hour. Well, pastor, if that's true, then why even study the end times? Listen, the fact that we don't know when Christ is coming is all the more reason to study the end times, to be ready, be alert at any moment. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 24, beginning with verse 42? Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day the Lord is coming, and he gives this illustration. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would, have allowed his, would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. The fact we don't know when means we ought to be ready at all times. Somebody said one time, Live every day as if it were your last day, because one day it will be. A number of years ago, I was being interviewed by a radio host at Fox News. He was Jewish, good friend of mine. He said, Dr. Jeffers, do you think you're going to live to see the return of Jesus? I said, I don't know, but it really doesn't make any difference. He said, what do you mean it doesn't make any difference? I said, well, I'm 58 years old at the time. I said, I'm 58 years old, and I know in the next 30 years, one of two things is happening. Either he's coming or I'm going. But I know the end is close for me, and it's close for you as well. And that's why we better be ready. And that's the theme of Scripture. The end of time is coming the end of the time of the world, and the end of our time as well, and we need to be ready. So, 
Are we living in the end times? To answer that question, we need to understand the difference between the last days and the end times. This is critical if you're going to know if we're in the end times or not. There is a difference between what the Bible calls the last days and what the Bible calls the end times. Let's look at the last days first of all. Now, I've put this prophecy chart. You're going to see it a number of times. But you see the last days over on the left-hand side that correspond to the church age. You find the phrase last days in many scriptures, Hebrews 1-2. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul writes, for realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. The last days are roughly that period of time between Christ's ascension into heaven after his resurrection and the rapture of the church. Now, I said that period of time closely corresponds to what the Bible calls the church age, or some people call it the times of the Gentiles. Remember, when Christ was on earth the first time, the Jews rejected him by and large. And because of Israel's rejection, even though God had made a promise to them that we'll look at next week, God temporarily, not eternally, but temporarily set aside Israel because of the hardness of their hearts. And he opened up the gospel to Gentiles, people like you and me. He invited us to come and be joint heirs with the Jews in the promises made to Abraham. Now, we are not the replacement for Israel. Don't make that mistake. God's going to fulfill his promise to Israel. He's going to fulfill it. Romans 11, 2 to 5 says, uh, God cannot reject his people. He has temporarily set aside Israel right now for salvation. He's got seven more years to deal with Israel, but right now we're in the time of the Gentiles. How will we know when that time of the Gentiles, the church age, um, the last days are over? When the last Gentile has been saved, who's going to be saved, there will occur the rapture of the church. That's the next event on God's prophetic timetable. And that will usher in the period of time known as the end times. We're in the last days right now, obviously. We're living after the time that Christ ascended into heaven. We're in the last days right now, but the last days will end with the rapture of the church, and the end times will begin, according to Daniel 9, when a very specific event takes place. The Antichrist, who has assumed world power, will sign a peace covenant with Israel. Now, we'll talk about this more in the weeks to come, but I believe that the rapture is going to be used uh, or explained away by some global catastrophe that explains the disappearance of millions of people. And this world catastrophe that is used to explain away the rapture will throw the world into such chaos, the Bible says the Antichrist will assume control of the world without any force whatsoever. People will turn to him, and he will be the one who brokers the ultimate Middle East peace deal with Israel. That's the beginning of the seven years of tribulation. He'll probably get the Nobel Peace Prize for what he's been able to accomplish. People will worship him because he's finally answered the Middle East dilemma. He keeps that covenant for three and a half years. But after three and a half years, he breaks that covenant with Israel. He begins to persecute Israel. 
and Christians who have been saved during that period of time. And that seven years of uh, tribulation climaxes with the battle of Armageddon, Revelation 16, Revelation 19, and the return of Jesus Christ, the visible return of Jesus Christ. And that is the end of the end times going into the millennium. So, right now, we're clearly in the last days. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. We have, we're not in the end times technically because the rapture hasn't occurred and the Antichrist has not appeared. But I would make an argument today that not only are we living in the last days, but we are living in the last of the last days. I would argue that we are on the brink of the beginning of the end times. Why would I say such a thing? Well, remember this about the end times, what Jesus said. Write these two things down. Some signs of the end times are present in every generation. I mean, let's face it, for thousands of years, there's always been wars, and there's been earthquakes, and there have been famines. Uh, some signs of the end times are present in every generation. We live in a fallen world, and we're going to experience those things. But secondly, the signs of the end times will accelerate in frequency and intensity when we get close to the end. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 4 to 8, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead any. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of war. See to it that you're not frightened, for those things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Jesus and other rabbis used the image of labor pains to explain the end time. Now, I've never had labor pains before. I've witnessed them, but I haven't had them. But you ladies understand this analogy. If you're pregnant, you can go months without any discomfort. But as you get closer to the end, there begin labor pains. Sometimes they come and then they quickly depart. Sometimes you engage in false labor. You make a trip to the hospital and find out that it was premature. But then comes that time when the contractions start to occur closer and closer to one another. They increase in frequency. They also increase in intensity. The pain gets worse and worse. And you know you're on the verge of something big happening. That's what Jesus said the end times are going to be like. There are some labor pains that have been around a long time. But Jesus said when we're close to the end, close to the birth of the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, when we get closer, those events are going to happen more frequently. You're going to see more earthquakes, more wars, more famines, more plagues or pestilences, epidemics. You're going to see that more and more and more, and they're going to be more intense than they've ever been before. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what we're witnessing right now. I believe these signs are increasing not only in frequency but in intensity. I've had several interviewers ask me recently, Pastor, why do you want to tie all this to the end times? Why don't you know? They've been fighting over there in the Middle East for thousands of years. What makes this time different? 
Nuclear weapons is what makes this different. Israel has had enemies for thousands of years. But think about this. The first atomic bomb, two of them, were developed in 1945 and dropped on Japan. Today, there are 13,000 of them. 13,000 nuclear weapons that we know about right now. And Israel's enemies, by and large, are armed or almost ready to be armed with those nuclear weapons. It presents a whole different level of threat into the world today. And what the Bible predicts, we can easily see how it's going to happen. The reason I'm convinced that we are at the last of the last days is we can look past the last days into the future and see how things are being set up for that great final world battle known as Armageddon. Do you realize for years, critics of the Bible laughed and even Bible scholars wondered, why would all of the world superpowers descend on a little nation like Israel that's no bigger than the state of New Jersey? It doesn't make any sense until you read the Bible. God is going to bring them there for the final conflict and they're all going to be armed with nuclear weapons. Listen to Revelation 16, verses 13 to 14. John says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that is Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, the antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. Ladies and gentlemen, things are falling into place for this great world battle, fought by the superpowers of the world, the Bible says, who will be armed with nuclear weapons. Although we're not technically in the end times right now, we're at the verge, I believe, of the beginning of the end times. What should be our response to that reality? Paul gives us the right response in Romans 13. Listen to this very carefully. Verses 11 and 12. Do this, knowing the time that it is already an hour for you to awaken from your sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. What was Paul saying? He was saying to those Roman Christians back in 60 AD, he said, wake up. Your salvation, that is your deliverance, your promise from God of a new heaven and earth and a new body your ultimate deliverance is nearer today in 60 AD than it was when you believed 25 years ago and became Christians. It's nearer today than it was then. Paul said that nearly 2,000 years ago. If Paul were standing here today, what would he say to us? He would have said, ladies and gentlemen, I thought 2,000 years ago it was close, and it was on God's calendar but think how much closer it is today for you. It's time to wake up, Paul said. It's time to wipe the sleep from your eyes. It's time to get ready and get prepared 
Because the nighttime, the darkness of this world is about to be eclipsed by the bright light of the return of Jesus Christ. Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's bow together. There's only one way to be ready to meet God, whether it's through His coming or our going. The only way to be prepared is to make sure you have been forgiven of your sins. Please, nobody leaving, nobody interrupting the Holy Spirit's work. The hymn writer said, When He shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. The only way to meet God is to be dressed in the righteousness, the goodness of Jesus. If you try to stand before God in your own goodness, your own righteousness, you're going to be sorely disappointed in the verdict. Depart from me, God will say, for I never knew you. None of us can be good enough to earn heaven. None of us can earn the forgiveness of our sins. That's something only Christ can do. That's why he came the first time and died on a cross to take the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And when we confess our sins to God and we say, God, I'm trusting in Jesus and what he did for me on the cross alone to save me, it's like we wrap ourselves in the righteousness of Christ. And he, and he looks at us. He no longer sees our sin. He sees the goodness, the righteousness of his own son. Have you received that forgiveness that God offers you today? If not, it's no accident you're here in our worship center. It's no accident you've tuned into this broadcast. God is extending that invitation to forgiveness to you. And if you'd like to receive that gift, I encourage you, wherever you are, to pray this prayer in your heart as I pray it out loud, knowing that God is listening to you. Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know I have failed you in many ways, and I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I've heard today, that you love me so much you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me, to take the punishment I deserve to take for my sins. And right now I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me, not in my good works, but in what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.